I have been at Vogue on and off since 1984, when obviously when I was very young. And it's really down to a man called Alex Kroll, who was in charge of uh, Vogue's book division. And he made me a, a job offer. And, he, and one of the first tasks he asked me to do when I joined Vogue was to collate what remained of Lee's negatives for Vogue. I'm Robin Muir, I'm a photographic historian and exhibitions arranger and Alex told me just amazing stories about this woman combat photographer Lee Miller, you know, and I thought well, Vogue as, as a war photographer? And of course he'd known her very well and it turned out of course that Alex Kroll was the Vogue art director who laid out that famous and rather amazing Night Life Now uh, story about the ATS Searchlight Squad with the shaft of light that bisects the double page. And to hear stories about Lee from someone that knew her was an extraordinary moment. And of course, the more I got to, to know about Lee, the more questions I used to ask Alex Kroll about it. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Lee Miller Fashion in Wartime Britain podcast. I'm Amy Buhesen, and I'm the co-director of the Lee Miller Archives. The podcast explores a period in Lee's life that is surprisingly underexposed, her work as a fashion photographer in Britain during the war. This is also covered in a book of the same name, and we hope to open an exhibition of it here at Farley's in May. This time, I'm chatting with Robin about the inner goings-on in British Vogue at the time when Lee, my grandmother, was working there. Robin is a contributing editor at British Vogue, and as a consultant to their photographic archives, is able to give us a great insight into the magazine that played such a pivotal role in Lee's life. I started out, though, by asking what Robin's favourite image from the book was. For me... There is a, a very simple and effective photograph. It's a sort of late summer vignette for autumn coats with clouds scudding across the sky, but ominously in the background, you're just able to make them out up in the clouds, are several barrage balloons. And you get that feeling of et in Arcadia ego. Even the most peaceful setting is a spectre of death, destruction, carnage remains. There's a sort of menace to it, which I very much respond to. I think it's a very clever photograph. It is really interesting. In a way, it defines the work Lee did at the time, seamlessly mixing both the real-life world of war with the fashion of the day. The balance that she had to strike is symptomatic of the themes that were confronting British folk at the time. As the war progresses and the threat of invasion looms larger, there's the feeling that, you know, this is it. We're in this for the long haul now. And the magazine begins to reflect a rather dispiriting new reality and, and titles uh, you know came without ornament you know titles such as bargain of the month or hats to buy or smart standbys and smart fashions for limited incomes are very very terse very matter of fact and and this helps underscore the new reality that britain and vogue face and as if to compensate for what could be perceived now as downbeat content vogue's layouts become more imaginative and Lee's determination to bring the reality of life into her fashion work becomes much more pronounced. So a jagged tangle of barbed wire becomes the background of one fashion picture. But she really brings the war in by subtler means. The drastic impact that the war was having on British society forced a fundamental shift in the relationship between British Vogue and its American counterpart. I think it's important, first of all, to recognise that at the beginning of World War II, at the eve of World War II, there are 
three Vogues. There's American Vogue founded in 1892. There is British Vogue founded in 1916. Again, coincidentally, ironically, at the height of a previous conflict. And there's French Vogue set up in 1920. And these are all founded by Condé Nast, an American publisher who's an important figure uh, himself in the story of, of Lee Miller. Historically, in the case of British Vogue, the American parent company exerts enormous influence on the look and the content of the magazine. And naturally enough, as Britain faces isolation at the beginning of the war, this transatlantic transaction diminishes and British Vogue really, for the very first time, manages to find its own voice and its own identity and it escapes the, the, the shadow and the influence of this American parent company. Uh, and the war changes British Vogue profoundly. This war is a catastrophe that it can't really ignore, uh, nor would it want to. I think it's also important to say this, that the pictures that Lee took from 1944, when she starts on her journey through wartime Europe, by the end of the war, Vogue has acquired a gravity and a significance totally unexpected when war broke out and entirely unexpected for a fashion magazine, uh, which by, you know, by its very nature, rarely responds to global uh, crises in these ways. And so Lee gives Vogue's readers a ringside seat at the, at the theatre of war and, and it changes Vogue thereafter. I mean, she helped kickstart Vogue into the modern world, I think. The changes between American and British Vogue weren't just stylistic. The materials available to the publication were completely different, and this affected the magazine's physical appearance too. Vogue's format changes because of paper rationing. It's, it goes from a fortnightly to a monthly, and it's also printed on very, what we might call cheap stock, very sort of uncoated, unvarnished paper. The paper is very, very fragile and, and it desiccates and it, and it crumbles quite quickly. So it's very unusual now to be able to find original copies of Vogue from the war years. Amazingly, this was further compounded by a decision to consign all of British Vogue's archive to the recycling bin. In the issue of March 1942, under the heading The Stuff of Vogue, Cecil Beaton is shown sitting amongst a gargantuan load of his photographs, which are destined for the pulping machine in order to, to recycle paper. And at one stroke, sadly for future historians, but very obviously uh, important for the war effort, Vogue's collection of magazines, all its papers, all its photographs, the Mayers, the Steikens, the Benitos, the Beatons, the Lepaps, and of course, virtually all of Lee's work between um, 1939 and 1942, all go into the recycling effort. Because Lee's work from this period was pulped, very few original prints by her exist and we only have the negatives here in the archives. We think this is one of the reasons why Lee's British fashion work has been marginalised. What remains there is a remarkable record of some incredibly exciting work, which is often helped in the publication by innovative design work from Vogue's art director, Alex Kroll. 
The most dramatic, I think, in presentational terms at least, is Nightlife Now, a story from 1943, its subject an ATS squad lit by the reflected glare of the searchlight. And the stories lent a greater graphic urgency in the magazine with a double page layout of images of these operators bisected on the diagonal by this radiant shaft of light. For want of a better expression, they become urgent and immediate and suddenly alive. It's like the war is happening. And, and, and you know, as if to underscore that, when Lee had finished the photo shoot with the ATS girls, the team actually came under enemy fire, which must have allowed Lee to feel, if only for a moment, that she was now you know, genuinely part of the war itself. This particular shoot was in South Mims in North London. As Lee was photographing them, she had her wartime buddy David Sherman with her and he had a giant mirror and he was there with her reflecting the light from the searchlight into their faces so that they're properly lit for her photograph. And there these wonderful women are standing in a group looking like they're having a jolly song around a fire and looking really happy in their kind of bear-like coats. And it's horrible to think that just a few minutes later, all of them were to be shot at. It was incredibly dangerous to be an Auxiliary Territorial Service Searchlight squad member. The very nature of what they had to do, which was to shine these giant searchlights into the sky so that enemy aeroplanes could be identified, meant that they were in the firing line. It is clear that the role that Lee and British Vogue played in the war effort was an important one, especially when it came to disseminating government messages to the women of Britain. In the editor, Audrey Withers, who was a lifelong libertarian socialist, the government found an assiduous and hard-working supporter. Uh, and Vogue becomes sort of full of aphorisms and maxims and messages that mirror government thinking. The often quoted one is from September 1939, and it reads, Our policy is to maintain the standards of civilization. We believe that woman's place is Vogue's place, and woman's first duty is to preserve the arts of peace by practicing them so that in happier times they will not have fallen into disuse. So once more, we raise the carry-on signal as proudly as a banner. And this went, you know, rather well. And its circulation soared and readers were ready enough for their fix of glamour to pay seven and six for a second-hand copy, the, the cover price being one and six. And there's a story which has never really been refuted that a subscriber literally had to die before a new one could sign on. That's really unusual, actually encouraging people to share issues rather than buy their own. Yes, it's not the ideal business plan model for a magazine to, in, in a sense, discourage other readers from, from buying the magazine. But the truth is, there are only a finite amount of Vogue's published. And, you know, what, what Vogue is trying to do is to, uh, it's raison d'etre at the moment, is to push this government message across and... The more inventive ways it can do that, the better for everyone. So Vogue is in that rather unique position for the first and probably only time in its entire history of saying, you know, don't necessarily buy another copy. Give your copy to somebody else so that everybody can get these, these messages. Which is interesting for a magazine to request its readers to actually give the magazine on to others. It doesn't happen again, I don't think. Lee's imagination and creativity were important components when it came to illustrating what was needed. Lee would turn out to be vital to Audrey Withers' 
vision for voyaging wartime. And if, as Withers puts it late in life, the proper business of a magazine is to reflect the life of its times, her alliance with Lee allowed her to achieve that purpose, uh, you know, vividly in, in pictures and words. Lee arrives at Vogue in 1939 at a propitious time. At the Vogue studios, staff members and photographers, technicians, darkroom people, they all enlist. So the magazine is relying on an ever-changing roster of slightly less talented individuals. And there were few photographers that really met the magazine's rigorous standards uh, who are not already engaged somehow in war work. So it's Lee, who is demonstrably talented already, having honed her craft in the Vogue studios in uh, the States and in Paris, uh, and, and as well as having at one point her own commercial photographic studio. She's the one that is in the right place at the right time and becomes Vogue's chief photographer of fashion during during this time. You know, it's interesting to note that between March 1940, when Lee is by now a fixture at the Vogue studio, until December 1944, by which time, you know, her trajectory has changed course decisively. For British Vogue alone, she produced over 400 pages of fashion photography. These 400 pages do not take into account conventional portraiture, or the additional fashion pictures uh, for Vogue supplements. Uh, and it doesn't take into account anything that may have reached the American edition, nor of course her earliest war reportage. So this would have increased her total considerably more than the 400 pages. So I think that under or emphasizes the fact that she is in short indispensable. And of course she's inventive too. You know, Audrey Withers may mutter that photographers have brainwaves and these have to be examined seriously, though not always acted on. Nonetheless, Lee strives to punctuate her fashion work with some sort of graphic flourish. And this mostly has, at its starting point, her affinity with the surrealism of the interwar years. I mean, for example, there's a great fashion story called Signs of the Times, and it's a spread on the season's what Vogue calls new elegance. And she uses a clockmaker's showroom to shoot a plain woolen dress against a, a tumble of starburst wall clocks. She sets off a, a rather ordinary black felt hat by Molyneux against a parade of Ming figurines. So too there's a cascade of oversized curtain tassels which she uses to present a, a Victor Stiebel dress. So she's, she's very inventive at using what is there and of course you know she needs to be continually inventive because she is the most prolific uh, photographer for the magazine at this moment. So what about the other photographers um, and Vogue staff at the time? Of the bigger names Vogue had cut ties with Cecil Beaton, its, its chief photographer of the pre-war years, in 1938 after a drawing he had submitted to the American edition uh, had contained an anti-Semitic slur. But his new attachment to the Ministry of Information as an official war photographer offered him the chance of redemption. And so Vogue began publishing his photographs again. And really, you know, irritating for Lee, whenever Cecil comes back to London, you know, he's the returning star and he would be handed the prize portrait assignments, Churchill or various cabinet ministers. But he's he's there one minute, gone the next. Norman Parkinson is the other big homegrown name. He makes his first photographs of the magazine in 1941. 
but his appearances are fairly sporadic until 1944 and by that time Lee has sort of left fashion for her European odyssey. But in 1941 Parkinson is combining agriculture and photography. He also farms for the war effort in Worcestershire. His strength is also what we call documentary fashion. That is to say, you know, volunteers in action, harvesting fruit, the Women's Land Army driving tractors and so on. Now, Lee herself takes several such pictures, notably in 1941, a rather heroic portrait of a young volunteer of the Women's Emergency Land Corps trying to manoeuvre a tractor on heavy downland soil. But really, these two photographers, Beaton and Parkinson, are present in the background and they become more prominent as the war goes on. But really, for now, until Lee leaves for Europe in 1944, she really is the, the, the photographer of the moment. So what sort of assignments was Lee fulfilling? Lee is really doing everything for Vogue at this point, from studio fashion work to outside location work, portraits, styled portraits, still life. She's doing the lot, I mean, really because there's nobody else qualified to do it quite as well as her. And I have to say, I think she acquits herself very, very well with uh, what might be perceived as rather ordinary subject matter. But I think in 1941 on, as Vogue focuses itself more closely on the, on the, on the vital labour being carried out by women on the land and in factories, Lee begins to document the serviceable protective clothing that's handed out to war workers and other volunteers. And she manages, I think, to make the most arresting pictures out of, you know, rather featureless and functional items. I think she's very, very clever at that. She, she, she gives them a, a real sort of graphic clarity and a simplicity, which is just exactly what's needed, again, to get this message across. Then, of course, she begins what uh, she might call her war work proper. This is documenting those that are on the true sort of domestic front line, these armies of volunteers that work the land and the service women in uniform, such as the Women's Royal Naval Service, the Wrens, and about whom she visits several times in their base in Greenwich and then on location at a naval base. And she produces a book, Wrens in Camera, as a result of that. And I, you really get the impression that once she's starting to photograph the, these women doing vital war work, she's really beginning to feel that for her, the war is starting. And of course, British folk didn't escape the war unscathed. In April 1941, the Vogue Patterns building in the city takes a direct hit and Lee was sent to document the, the cleanup and Vogue publishes the pictures under the title here is Vogue in spite of it all, and rather sort of knowingly and phlegmatically asking its readers for a few weeks grace and the Vogue pattern service will once more be at your service. So I love this sort of way that Vogue stoically is determined to, to carry on much as it expects its readers to do. This would have a direct result on the type of photos that Lee was taking at the time and took her out of the studio where she could be more creative and sometimes in surreal circumstances. One of the things that happens is that Lee begins to gravitate from the Vogue studios 
and starts to do much more what we call location work. She's out on the streets photographing fashion, which I think suits her much more, actually, in a way. And this is really for, for two reasons. One, the magazine realises it needs the variety of, of location work. And secondly, the fact that actually the studio, although it doesn't come under direct fire itself, it reaps the disadvantages of being next to several buildings that are hit. And in fact, Lee writes home to her parents, a rather wonderful letter in which she writes, it's a matter of pride that work went on. The studio never missed a day, bombed on and fired twice, working with the neighboring buildings still smoldering, the horrid smell of wet charred wood, the stink of cordite, the fire hoses still up the staircases. So you get a vivid picture there of what life is like during the Blitz and what happens in a sense to the Vogue studio, which sends Lee off onto the streets, uh, starting to take fashion photography on location. What do you think are some of the most odd or interesting locations that she she shot at? So she does find extraordinary places to take photographs in, not least inside and outside museums. I think she goes into the Natural History Museum and I think there's a, a sort of giant dinosaur she photographs them under. She goes to this clockmaker's uh, studio and does a fantastic arrangement of clocks as a, as a backdrop as well. She finds interesting sort of street vernacular. She finds torn posters to put models next to. And of course, the Blitz has left a lot of London you know, under rubble. And Lee's surrealist eye, you know, always finds a sort of beauty in this sort of destruction. And although Audrey Withers doesn't allow much of that sensibility to creep in, she doesn't really want her readers to be seeing, uh, you know, close photographed on their own bomb doorsteps, as it were. Uh, she does allow Lee sometimes to do a bit of that sort of fashion imagery. And what she really does is she places her models in day-to-day -day surroundings. The very first time Lee photographs a utility suit, for example, she places her model at her telephone table, itemising a shopping list. Then she goes to the shops, then she meets friends. By putting the clothes in recognisable sort of everyday situations, the clothes look at once desirable and practical. And in short, as Vogue says, a wise long-term investment if you have a little extra money to spend. And I think freedom from the, the confine of the studio presents Lee for much more of an opportunity, naturally enough, for spontaneity and informality. What did Condé Nast think of Lee's plein air kind of out of studio shots? Freedom from the confines of the Vogue studio really suited Lee. And she makes, I think, some of her best fashion pictures on location. And of course, this newfound sense of freedom doesn't go unnoticed. Condé Nast, Vogue's publisher, her mentor in New York, writes to her, in really quite glowing terms. The photographs, he writes, are more alive now, the background's more interesting, the lighting more dramatic and real. You manage to handle some of the deadliest studio situations in the manner of a spontaneous outdoor shot, and your outdoor work brings a very fresh and much-needed note to the magazine. So, you know, on the evidence presented by the publisher himself, these out-of-doors, en-plein-air fashion shoots are, are a great hit. Another big change that happened whilst Lee was at British Vogue was the use of colour photography. Vogue had published its first colour photographic cover in 1932, and colour work emanating from Vogue's London studio was still very rare, colour pages being printed from plates 
supplied by the American parent company. However, Lee managed to mine a very fruitful connection, an expert in the, the colour reversal process, and she was able to obtain from him films and the chemicals to develop them with. And her first colour picture, which is a Kodachrome of a Czech suit and a red overcoat, is a very vivid and auspicious debut. And a memo, funnily enough, touches specifically on this. It's um, from Audrey Withers to Edna Woolman Chase, who's her US counterpart in New York. Uh, in early 1944, Audrey says, we have just taken our first Kodachrome cover, a Lee Miller picture for our April issue. This is, she says, however, an entirely new field for us, since we have hardly designed more than half a dozen covers in our lifetime, and these have up to now all been drawn. But this April cover is very much a striking addition to, to Lee's canon of fashion images, and the more so for its simplicity. The Vogue logo is in a vibrant red, there's a belted Macintosh and a yellow umbrella and an arm full of yellow daffodils. And, and inside, Lee made sure that her, her photographic credit was prominently displayed. During 1944, before her departure for the European Theatre of War, colour images by Lee become something of a regular occurrence. For the main magazine that year, she produces 16 colour images, including a dramatic double-page study of the season's new hats, triumphantly titled Colour in the Picture. But following the, the, the hat double-page spread, we find her only published colour portrait, which is a suitably ethereal study of the actress Kay Hammond, who is at that point the, the star of Noel Coward's supernatural comedy Blythe Spirit. And after that's published, Lee is now firmly uh, in Europe on her journey into war. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Lee Miller Fashion in Wartime Britain. If you'd like to look more into this remarkable archive of Lee's work, the book of the same name is available in all good bookshops and from Farley's House and Gallery and the Lee Miller Archives website. Thank you so much to Robin Muir for giving these wonderful insights into British folk during the Second World War and Lee's work there. Before he left, I asked him what his favourite image from Lee's archive was. I should start by saying I think it's very iniquitous in many ways to select a favourite Lee Miller photograph from such an extraordinary and you know often harrowing archive but one must and i would definitely take something from nightlife now i think it does exemplify something about grace under pressure that whole series that's such a hallmark of vogue at that time and of the home front as a whole and it reminds me of one of my favorite wartime lines from jb Priestley who writes about the many-coloured flares blazing like sudden comets. I think Lee makes that whole story so extraordinarily vivid. It feels as if you are living nightlife now with her. I think that's very, very clever. In the next episode, we dive deeper into the role that British Vogue had in wartime Britain as we talk to the biographer Julie Summers about Audrey Withers, Lee's rather remarkable editor. This episode is presented by me, Amy Buhasen, co-director of Farley's House and Gallery, which manages the Lee Miller archives. Our guest was Robin Muir, and it was produced by Tolly Robinson. The soundtrack is licensed from DeWolf Music, and the copyright is copyright Lee Miller Archives 2021, all rights reserves. 
The series is made possible with public funding from DCMS Cultural Recovery Fund, which was awarded to us by the Arts Council England.